0: Hello and welcome to Cambridge Geopolitics Conversations and this series on the geopolitics of finance. I'm Hugo Bromley. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Klein. Matt is a financial journalist and economics commentator at Barron's, He is also the co-author with Professor Michael Pettis of the new book, Trade Wars Are Class Wars, which looks at how trade conflicts are caused by domestic inequality and facilitated by financial markets. Matt and I are going to be talking about this relationship between income inequality, finance and trade wars, and how states can lower the geopolitical tension that trade wars have created through domestic policy measures. Matt, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I I loved your book and I want to dive into the details of the argument and some of its implications as quickly as possible. Your overall argument in the book is that domestic inequality and low domestic consumption in surplus countries drives current account deficits overseas and ultimately trade conflicts. I was wondering if you could begin by taking us through how that works in the case of China.
1: Sure. So uh as you said that the, you know the argument at a sort of a at a macro global level there is not enough demand for goods and services relative to the world's businesses' ability to produce those goods and services. And that creates a tension where companies are fighting for a market share where it's not growing as much as it should. And that leads to imbalances where some people are going to be, you know, importing things from the rest of the world more than they export. That's some that's coming at the cost of their own domestic production. And other entities are going to be essentially exporting to the rest of the world to make up for the fact that there are there isn't enough demand at home. And our argument is that this ultimately is driven by inequality and the increase in inequality and concentration of income. And the reason for this is, is that if you look at most people in the world across time and across societies, they spend over the course of their lives, essentially everything they earn, you know, the household savings rates generally for, you know, most people are sort of varying between sort of zero and 10%. People at the very, very top of the income distribution, however, save enormous, uh, very large portions of their income, you know, half or more. And that's because people who earn enormous amounts of money, it's very hard, even if you have expensive tastes, to spend it all on goods and services. And goods and services spending is ultimately what creates incomes for everyone else. So instead, they're spending it on uh, buying assets. That could be financial assets. It could be things like real estate or fine art. But essentially... Those things aren't leading to incomes and jobs, for everyone else in the same extent. That means someone else has to create those assets, which generally means borrowing. So looking at, you know, as, as you mentioned in the case of China, what this means in practice is that there are a lot of institutions that the Chinese Communist Party and government began to establish, you know, really starting both, you know, quite frankly, some of them Sort of carried over from Mao, and then also more recently, sort of in the in the 90s and 2000s, that led to a shift in the distribution of purchasing power away from ordinary Chinese households, workers, and consumers, retirees, and instead towards um, elite groups, whether it was state-owned enterprises or rich Chinese sort of entrepreneurs or local governments. The net effect of this was to depress household consumption relative to Chinese production. And that ended up manifesting itself, among other things, into a large and persistent trade surplus, where if the Chinese economy and the businesses and workers there are producing more than the people who live there can afford to buy, that creates an excess that has to get sold somewhere else. And some of the things that were done to, to lead to this, I mean, probably the most notorious is the household registration or Hukou system, which um, you know hundreds of millions of workers in China moved from the countryside to the cities over the course you know beginning in the 1980s and they do not have many of the sort of basic legal and economic rights that people who are, you know, have the household registration associated with those coastal cities have. So that means that they can be essentially evicted and deported back to the countryside. They don't really have, you know, they're treated kind of like illegal immigrants in their own country in a lot of ways. They don't have access to the health care and education benefits that they're paying taxes on. And that obviously undermines both their ability to consume and also undermines their, their bargaining power with employers. They don't have access to unemployment insurance either. One of the things we saw in the coronavirus uh, crisis was that you had, um, you know, it's difficult to get the exact numbers. People estimate something like 50 million people moving from the cities back to the countryside because they lost their jobs and there was no income available for them at home. And they became subsistence farmers in the countryside. Uh, So that's one example. There's... um, one thing that you know has been a persistent issue is the way local governments can essentially seize peasant land and and give it to developers at, at low rates, which is obviously clearly a transfer from, ordinary households to the businesses that are the beneficiaries of these transfers. For a long time, the Chinese financial system was structured in a way that households, really the only way you could save any money at all was putting it in a bank deposit. But the interest rates in those deposits were extraordinarily low. And then banks would basically make loans that were at higher rates than the deposits, so they would still profit, but at very, very low rates. Relative economic growth to politically connected businesses and local governments, and so that was again another way of transferring income and, and and wealth from households, people who were trying to earn, you know, save money for their retirement, and it was basically just being channeled to businesses that were that were doing other things. So these are among the transfers we talk about that lead to the outcome of underconsumption, and uh, you know, it gives you a sense of why this this leads to less spending by Chinese people, lower living standards than otherwise you'd expect given the value of what Chinese businesses and workers are capable of producing.
0: This idea of underconsumption is actually a very old one. You begin the book with a reference to John A. Hobson and his early work on imperialism and the idea that you're creating markets for goods elsewhere to support domestic production. In the book, you explain that the, one of the consequences of the Chinese system is it's created an elite that is opposed to any kind of reform. And one of the other points you make is that One Belt, One Road has the potential to serve as a way of providing markets to sustain this system and to sustain this domestic underconsumption, even after other countries begin to get tough on China and get tough on Chinese economic action. Do you think that's a model we're going to see increasingly? And do you think that's a source of concern going forward?
1: It's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, underconsumption theory, you know, it goes, I mean, Hobson is is most interesting because of the way he applies it to the international dimension, and that's why we we cite him and, and talk about him. But I mean, the basic concept of underconsumption, I think goes back even, you know, hundreds of years before that. It's a it's it's funny that it's something that seems to be you know, repeatedly forgotten and then relearned, but essentially if businesses make money by selling things and people can't afford to buy those things, then you know ultimately it's in the, you know that, that creates a problem for, for businesses and the people who own those businesses. So you know that's just, that, I mean again it's, when I say it like this it sounds very simple but it's something that people you know tend to forget when they talk about optimal tax policy. You know in the case of China it's really interesting. So there was an there was an uh, economist at the U.S. Treasury Department about ten years ago named Kenneth Austin. And he wrote a paper saying that communist China as the apex of you know capitalist imperialism or something something it's a title similar along those lines sort of tongue in cheek but essentially saying that if you look at if you use Hobson's economic framework that china you know in 2011 was very similar to imperial britain in you know 1900 in terms of the way it interacted with the rest of the world economically obviously there were some very important differences in terms of you know how the british empire functioned at that time and china did then but nevertheless in sort of the economic sense of the hobson's argument that the british empire was partly a consequence of the fact that british elites did not want to pay british workers enough to afford everything they're producing, and so therefore they wanted to look abroad to find markets elsewhere. You know, you can say that Chinese elites, again, not paying their workers enough, they depended on demand from, until 2008, anyway, particularly demand from the US and Europe and so forth. And obviously, there's still plenty of imports from China, from the US and Europe after 2008. But what we saw is that because of the financial crisis, even before the idea of getting tough on China, but just the fact that the economies, and the major advanced economies basically just crashed and then grew much more slowly afterwards, that meant that there was less room for Chinese companies to sell and get the kind of sales growth they would, have, they would have wanted from selling to those markets. And so there were two consequences of this in China. The first was that the Chinese government responded by trying to increase spending in China. But unfortunately, because they'd spent so many years making it difficult for Chinese households to have money to spend, that wasn't you know what they did. Instead, they basically just created uh they they accelerated some of the things they were already doing um particular infrastructure investments of dubious quality so building um you know subway stations in marshland far away from city centers or or building up you know housing blocks in, in cities where building entire cities where nobody lived Which, you know, creates jobs in the short term and sort of offsets the impact in the short term of of the loss of sort of U.S. or the reduction of U.S. and European markets, but wasn't sufficient. And in fact, they recognize this. And so you see a big change in Chinese policy around 2011, 2012, where they sort of retrench. You see total GDP growth slows down, investment spending slows way down. Um, but then this gets back to the question of where they're going to find markets for their businesses. If the domestic, if the domestic market's not going to grow enough to provide that, that kind of demand, and if Europe and America are just too weak economically relative to where it was before, and this is where we get to. You, you mentioned one belt, one road. I feel like it, I feel like the name of it keeps changing. I think now they call it, you know belt and road initiative, or they don't call it anything. But you know this idea of like going out to the you know the global south, the rest of the world, and trying to do things there, and I think there were a lot of motivations for for this. I, I wouldn't. Someone who really understands Chinese politics would probably be able to give you all sorts of interesting details about you know the ideological impetus and so forth. And but I do think there was a clear economic implication or rationale for it, which is exactly that if your domestic market can't generate more demand, and if your traditional foreign markets aren't going to generate enough demand, then you have to find new foreign markets. And so the idea of having Chinese government-backed development banks lending a lot of money to you know, Sri Lanka or Malaysia or Hungary or Venezuela, and then have those people have the have those governments then contract out Chinese firms to send Chinese workers to build infrastructure. You can see why that would be appealing as a sort of a, a solution to their economic problem. when entity, when people start making loans for the first time in areas they've never done before, they generally are too excited and they make they don't do their due diligence properly and they make a lot of mistakes. And so that's probably the the simplest explanation for what happened with China is all these banks that had never really done this stuff before we're being told by the government and being rewarded politically for going out and making loans as much as possible um, in new markets. And that obviously creates a set of incentives that, that it doesn't, they're not going to necessarily be good loans. And, you know, that seems to be what we've seen. Um, they've lost a lot of money and now they're sort of, they've been burned by that. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're just, cut. I mean, they've already been cutting back um, before. I wouldn't be surprised if we keep seeing that. And that's sort of independent of any sort of grand strategy, which again, to your original question, I mean, suggests that the Belt and Road Initiative as a substitute for serious changes in China's domestic economy, it's not going to work. I mean, this year has been interesting because the U.S. has been very helpful to China insofar as the amount of uh, government support to U.S. households throughout the coronavirus pandemic, combined with the fact that a lot of consumer services just aren't available to the same extent they were, has meant that there's been a huge demand, an increase in demand for goods um, by American consumers, many of which are either made in China or have components made in China and that's, you know, shown up in, in the data we've seen over the past year. But that's I mean, is that sustainable for China? I don't I don't think so.
0: So the Chinese half of this is perhaps the half that listeners will be most familiar with. I want to we've got limited time and I want to get onto the US and the UK and give and give them a lot a lot of time because I think your your insights there are fascinating. But just quickly, one of the surplus countries that you analyze and decriticize in the book is Germany. Which I think people might be more surprised by the path that Germany took towards income equality is hugely complicated politically, and you, you you piece it together. But one of the things I found fascinating is your argument that as a result of the Euro crisis, when deficit countries in Southern Europe that had absorbed a lot of Germany's surplus then could not and were forced to stop doing so, they many of them have sort of adopted a German model of suppressing consumption to drive exports. Do you think in a, in a way, this has been a step backwards for the global economy. And how can we move to a position where that consu- those consumption levels, somewhat counterintuitively in Southern Europe, return to going back up?
1: So, yes, I, I agree. I think this has been incredibly harmful. And most obviously for the people who live in those countries. So, you know, one, one thing I would... I, a minor quibble I would have with the way you phrase this is that I don't think that the people who are in charge of Spain or Italy or so forth were consciously saying we are going to suppress consumption so that we can you know have our trade balance improve. It's more that they that there, was, there was no choice. And sort of a natural implication of this is that imports ended up falling more than exports ended up growing sort of in line with the global economy. And I think one of the unfortunate misperceptions that a lot of people have in Europe and shaped by sort of the German description of this is that the crisis that occurred in Europe was a function of competitiveness, lack of competitiveness, and that the solution was to improve competitiveness. And that the extent that countries such as Spain seem to have recovered somewhat from the bottom in 2011, 2012, it's because they improved their competitiveness, and that's just not true. First of all, Spanish exports, which I think is a reasonable measure of competitiveness, were growing quite rapidly. Before, the, before 2008. So it's not as if, and in fact as a share of the Spanish economy were pretty stable, which suggests that the ability of, of, of Spanish businesses to produce goods and services that people in the rest of the world wanted did not deteriorate at all during that period. The thing that had happened that was unfortunate for people in Spain was that um, there was a change in financial conditions that meant that there was an even bigger increase in imports over this period, which again, wouldn't necessarily have been a problem, except that that increase in imports and increase in domestic spending by households and businesses exceeded the ability to Spanish economies uh, to actually make good use of it. And so the consequence was a really big increase in private indebtedness and a dependence on debt to maintain the economic growth that Spain had experienced up until 2008. And so then what happens is once that financing was withdrawn, what had been a positive impulse of, of more debt leading to rising real estate values and more investment suddenly goes in reverse, that real estate values go down, there's less debt to finance it, um, people don't want to lend because they're, you're falling collateral, all the, the construction associated with that stops and goes deeply negative. And so suddenly you have a situation where the economy collapses quite dramatically and you're left with this huge overhang of debt. And when that happens, then all of a sudden households aren't... Spending as much as they were before. In fact, they're spending much less. They're trying to repay debt. Businesses aren't spending. And that collapses demand for imports. And on top of that, you have, have a banking crisis and the government is forced to cut spending, even though government actually was running basically budget surpluses throughout this period in, in Spain. And so, you know, you, what you have is infrastructure investment in Spain. Netted depreciation essentially is negative for, you know, 10 years. And, you know, again, is this good for people in Spain? No. This is This good for people outside of Spain. I don't, I don't see why it would be, but does it lead to a huge change in Spain's trade balance? Yes. And in fact, and, and interestingly, it leads to, it's basically a version of what happened in Germany over a longer time scale than in the 1990s and the, in the 2000s. And it's, it's not really good for anyone. It's a, it's a set of outcomes of following a, you know, the prescriptions of a German government that was led, influenced by people who believed they'd figured something out. But in fact, we're just, just engaging in self harm.
0: And the thing they believed they'd figured out was Schrödinger and, and this idea of moving to essentially eliminate deficits.
1: So that's that's one of the things. So basically, the the context is that is might be worth getting into a little bit here is that the German economy now, and we were used to being. It being this way for so long, you know, people think of Germany as the powerhouse of Europe or what have you. But that's a relatively recent development, that it was not at all true in the 1990s or the early 2000s. In fact, I think there was a, a cover of The Economist that said that Germany was calling Germany the sick man of Europe in the early 2000s. And, and the context of that was that they had very uh, slow growth for a long time, very high unemployment, and it seemed like things just weren't going well for them compared to especially more dynamic countries such as Spain, most obviously. And so you get to the early two thousands and you actually have a series of of changes put in place by Gerhard Schroeder, who was one of the social democrats actually. One of the Among the the changes that were sort of most significant and most controversial was basically kicking a lot of people off unemployment benefits and pushing them into these low-paying part-time jobs. And that had two interesting consequences. One is that it made the German government budget deficit go down, because instead of paying unemployment to people, you're collecting social insurance taxes from people, even if they're not making very much money. And then the other thing, of course, is that the unemployment rate, as officially measured, goes down. Interestingly, the poverty rate ends up going up. And overall household living standards and and spending is flat to slightly negative. But for people who aren't looking at those data, you know, it seems like it's a positive development. And and in fact, uh, even though Schroeder ends up alienating a large portion of the Social Democrat base and then loses the... Uh, election of two thousand five, making way for Angela Merkel. What ends up happening is that Merkel, in sort of one of her typical genius political moves of co-opting the other side and neutralizing all political opposition, says, "Oh, this was a great idea. We're going to completely embrace it." And you know, we have to give Social Democrats credit for doing these tough reforms, which basically means that Social Democrats were just obliterated basically until now, at least. And this has just completely been entrenched as as orthodoxy. And then, as Germany managed to do okay in the years since then. There was then the conclusion that this must have been the secret sauce that explains why Germany did well. And then on top of that, then there were other things sort of reinforcing this. So just, oh, well, if we've managed to already shrink the budget deficit because we've been shoving people off of the unemployment rolls, like maybe we can do things even more to do that. They'd already been cutting infrastructure investment since the early 2000s, so they just kept doing them. You end up in a situation, as you said, the, the Schwarzenegger, the black zero, not even just that. They actually had budget surpluses pretty consistently. There's this thing called the debt break that they established, because again, they, the assumption that government debt is the source of all, all trouble, and they put that in place, I believe in 2009. It's a cons- part of the German constitution. And this was something that actually was pushed on other European countries as well, this idea that you should all have something like the debt break. And it's part of the, the EU fiscal compact is based on this idea. The government deficits should essentially be zero in general, and you might, and everyone should be trying to get to zero and should be trying to bring their debt down. And that there might have, maybe there's some allowances of the schedule and the pace of how you do that, depending upon you know how your economy is doing, but that that's sort of the underlying premise. And this was something that was, it was clearly driven by German policymakers and the apparent success of Germany's economic experience. And that ended up flowing through everywhere else and again like is this something that's actually helped people no not really again like living standards in all these countries have not grown particularly much. i mean in many places they're lower than they were t- you know 15 years ago since there's been any gdp growth it's been due to exports and then those export revenues have been used to pay back debt i mean that's again talking about sort of like colonialism I and mean, that's sort of what you that's what happened in you know imperial subject states you know 120 years ago so that's that's sort of the you know how how we ended up in that situation.
0: So. You have these two two surplus countries or two surplus um, areas in Europe and China, and then you have the United States. And one strange aspect of this is that the United States is in many ways very similar to Germany in having a weakening safety net in embracing similar-ish reforms in the late 90s and early 2000s and having a fairly high level of domestic and- Inequality, and yet it is the great deficit nation that absorbs all of these surpluses. How, why is the US different? I want to get on to the UK, which is similar and slightly more worrying, actually, and close to my heart. But why is the US in this particularly unique place, and what can the US do to change that?
1: So that's a great question. I mean, it's one of the things that's really interesting is the more we were learning, in particular, I was learning about what Germany's experience actually was like in the 90s and the 2000s. You can see a lot of similarities to the U.S. over that period. And it's it's very surprising that, you know, it's an interesting question. Like, why is it the U.S. ends up one way and Germany ends up the other way? So then the question is, like, why did that happen? And even though you had relatively austere government budget policy in that period in the U.S., and even though you had a really severe corporate investment bust, this was offset by the fact that you had a massive massive household debt boom and a massive decline in household savings rate the ways it went negative if you if you sort of take out people in the, in the top part of the household income distribution in the u s the household savings rate went from something like plus five percent to negative five percent and that ended up more than offsetting everything else and, and leading to the increase in the trade and current account deficit over the course of the 2000s, basically peaking in 2006 with the housing bubble. And then as the economy, domestic economy starts slowing down and housing prices going down, you sort of see a reversal of that and then quite dramatic reversal, financial crisis. And then basically staying, the current account deficit had been peaked at around 6% of the US economy uh, in 2005, 2006. And then it ended up being pretty consistently in sort of the 2 to 3% range after the financial crisis until 2020, basically. So that, I I think, you know, the the question, you know, what makes the U.S. different is that A, the U.S. is a financial system that can accommodate the demand from foreigners. And that B, there is that demand from foreigners um, that leads to those changes in the U.S. financial system that then lead to changes in the U.S. domestic economy.
0: And, And in other words, that money coming in then has to be spent and is spent on surplus goods from surplus countries in such a way that outweighs us so i mean
1: one way of looking at this is you can think of these i mean all these things sort of happen simultaneously so but yes as a practical matter it is not possible for surplus economies or not possible for any individual entity to earn more in income than it spends unless someone else is doing the reverse and In turn, those transactions are only possible, there has to be some sort of financial asset transaction to go along with this. So if I'm saving money because I'm spending less than I'm earning, then that means that I'm also saving money. I have to be buying some kind of financial asset, and that means someone else has to be creating a financial asset or selling one they already owned to me and buying more than they're earning. And you can aggregate that up at sort of country level, but that's essentially the process we're talking about. And that happens, of course, individual people and businesses do this all the time. These imbalances, is not necessarily harmful, depending on the circumstances at the country level, though, that's what's going on. And so as you were saying, the fact that the the, the US consumers were buying as much as they were relative to the income they were earning was only possible because other people in the rest of the world were doing the reverse they were producing but not consuming and that the corollary was that they were then you know lending the difference through various complex chains of intermediation to american consumers and so what happened was there was a massive increase in household indebtedness that led to higher levels of household consumption mm. that led to an increase in imports relative to exports i guess another way of looking at it is that for example german businesses or chinese government would not have been able to accumulate all the foreign assets they did unless someone else were willing to take the other side of that trade. And that's where the, you know, the importance of the U.S. financial system comes in into mm. play, into making those transactions possible.
0: Thank you. And thank you so much for going through this, which is a very complicated topic, but I think really important to understand. In the conclusion to your book, you identify ways for the U.S. to act, including essentially borrowing as a state to shift the burden of debt from households to the state that can then be invested in a productive way to grow the economy, because the US has this great advantage that it, it has the capacity to do that. However, you also mentioned in the book that the UK fulfills a very similar role in the global economy, of, of acting as a, as, a, as a receiver of surpluses. How can the UK respond when we consider that we maybe don't have the limitless capacity to borrow That is true in the u.s case and also one of the things you talk about most intelligently is how having a current account deficit brings wealth to and success to the financial services industry of a country and when you look at how the city is lionized in the uk as our great economic success how can the uk attempt to solve this problem given it's much less favorable and more reliant on financial services position relative to the United States?
1: That's a great question. So, as I mentioned, I mean, the reason why the UK performs a similar role, I think this is true for really all the major English-speaking advanced economies, so Canada, Australia, and even New Zealand. It's, again, the, the fact that the financial system and the legal system operate the way they do makes these countries very attractive for people in the rest of the world as a place to put sort of excess money. So you could be a Russian oligarch trying to get some of your money out of the country, you buy a Miami condo or, you know, some townhouse in Mayfair or whatever. <clears throat> you can be a rich Chinese buying a place in Vancouver or, you know, Auckland, right? There's a reason for this because it's easy, you know, the, the laws are all in English and everyone rich and the rest of the world speaks English and reads it. It's very investor-friendly regimes, so there's really no limits on... They're actually interesting how Canada, Australia, and New Zealand are starting to put limits on people, at least for housing, for buying foreigners, buying housing under certain circumstances. But in general, there are no limits for foreigners putting their money in. It's very easy to do. And again, you have financial sectors in all these countries which are capable of responding to big swings in demand by creating, finding some asset to create. That's true for the US, it's true for the UK, and it's true for the other ones as well. And so that is why, I mean, combined, the Anglosphere, if you will, generally sort of the big corresponding deficit to go along with the surpluses that we've seen from East Asia and then from you know, Northern Europe. And what I would what I would actually disagree with you is I think actually the UK has exactly the same ability as the US to respond to this in the way that we we talk about it, in the sense that if the demand is there from abroad to buy sterling assets, which there seems to be, I mean, it's less than there is for dollar assets, but there's also smaller economies, so it sort of balances out. I mean, that's why the current account deficit and interest rates in the UK don't look that different. Then there's no reason why you couldn't have the UK government perform a similar function. I mean, one of the things that we've seen in the U—I mean, one of the things we saw in the US actually happen was that after 2008, there was a huge increase in US government debt. But there was an increase in total debt because what happened was that household debt and corporate debt or financial sector debt basically fell relative to the economy and government debt went up, but that total indebtedness in the US economy was flat. And you could easily imagine, I mean, I'm not saying that was necessarily the ideal outcome, but there's no reason why the UK couldn't have something similar. I mean, we've seen, I think, pretty clearly that interest rates in the UK and so forth and the ability of the UK government to borrow doesn't really seem to be limited in any meaningful way. If, you, if you're if you worried about inflation risk, we're going to have this sort of a different story, but I don't think there really any limitations there. I think the sort of constraints are very similar. I think the point you make about how the, as you said, the lionization of of the city of London does create an interesting problem. And that sort of relates to the fact that, you know, just as we were saying in China that You create a particular system that benefits certain people that ends up creating, as they call them, vested interests who are very effective at blocking reform. It works the other way in in, in these countries as well, right? If the U.S. financial sector has done very well as a consequence, as the British financial sector has done very well as a consequence of this arrangement, they have a lot of political power and influence and economic power. And so they're going to try to block things that would affect that. Uh, And that's why in some ways, even though the the system, global system we describe is you think is inherently unstable and risky, nevertheless has a degree of permanence that's, that might seem surprising because of, you know, who's benefiting, who's in charge and how difficult it is to break that. And I mean, you raise a great point. I don't know how you do need some kind of significant political changes in these countries to really change the dynamic. Because otherwise, if yes, if, if everyone is thinking, ah, oh, we need to preserve the city of London and not change the ease with which foreigners can put their money in, then no, nothing will, nothing will change.
0: Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I think this is a really important and challenging thesis that people need to engage with as as we look to new economic policies coming out of coronavirus, actually. I suppose, as a final question, one of the important things you are arguing is that things that seem international, like trade disputes have their origins often in domestic policy and domestic concerns. Do you think there's a temptation among policymakers to unnecessarily separate the international from the domestic in how they look at problems? And do you think that coming out of coronavirus and, coming out and moving into these, these challenges we face, we need to think about political economy or, and international relations in a more joined-up way?
1: So the answer is yes. Uh, I completely agree with your, your description of that. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. We actually just recently finished writing a preface, a new preface for the paperback edition that'll be coming out of, of the book and, you know, talking about some of the things we've learned because, you know, we finished writing the book and basically the great beginning of 2020. And obviously some interesting things have happened since then that relate to our, <laughs> our thesis. And I mean, it's very clear that this distinction between what's foreign and what's domestic is essentially arbitrary. And in fact, a lot of what people think is one is actually the other. I mean, it, it's sort of a meta theme of our book is that, most of the stuff that people think of as having to do with trade doesn't really have much of an impact on it. Like trade deals and trade negotiation stuff doesn't really have a big difference. Well, things that people don't think have any connection to international trade actually are very significant. The fact that changes in German welfare policy have an impact on people in the rest of the world, I mean, that's just not in most people's vocabulary or way of thinking about things. And that's really the point. And you can relate this in a lot of ways. I mean, Public health, I think, is a very clear case of where we think we've we got a, a very you know, painful but useful education in this, right? It's not just what happens in one country. It matters to everybody. And so that's that's really the kind of the point that we're making. Having this sort of arbitrary distinction between one and the other is not very helpful. I mean, the, the world is a connected system. We're all connected one way or another in various ways. And, I mean, you could try to cut yourself off completely, but no one's really managed to do that and it's not clear why that would be better anyway if you were to succeed. And so given that, I mean, it's really useful, I think, to be thinking about, given our connections, what it is that we can do both in our own jurisdictions and, and elsewhere that can make life better for everybody.
0: Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Um, this has been terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Cambridge Geopolitics Conversations. You can find the Center for Geopolitics on Twitter at CamGeopolitics. All of our events are advertised on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk